Welcome to this week's edition of Everything Fast Pitch, sponsored by Fast Pitch Prep. Coach Don and I are here in the Cherokee Batting Range Podcast Studio getting ready to record episode number 167. We've got a really good show lined up for you today, but before we do that, I have to admit, the quick little College World Series preview that we did trying to predict winners, I had a lot of the matchups right, but I didn't expect that the matchups were all going to end up being in the loser's bracket because I couldn't pick a winner for a million dollars. Tori, I'm going to stick up for you because I'll tell you what, these games are going to be amazing and you just never know and that's why you got to play them. Yeah, but it was uh, it was fun to try to predict and then of course as soon as we had the big upset in game one of Oklahoma losing to James Madison, I knew I was in trouble. Anything but so, could happen. But so for anybody who wants to say uh, Coach Tori doesn't know what he's talking <laughs> about with uh, college softball predictions, you're right. But... Let's talk about the show today. We've got a great warm-up segment. We're going to talk about our City of the Week, Player of the Week, Equipment Tip of the Week. We've got another good Did You Know and a really good listener question. And, of course, we're always going to have Paige's Power Play. In our lead-off topic, we're going to do some uh, sort of uh, NCAA tournament thoughts, some things that now that we've gotten to the College World Series that uh, I think are interesting and worth talking about. In our cleanup topic, we're going to talk about rethinking some things that we do defensively and maybe changing some old school thoughts into some new school thoughts because I'm seeing a lot of things at the ballpark that don't necessarily make sense. And then for our coaching tip of the week, we're going to talk about something that we have touched on before, and that's the overcoaching of hitters during the game and uh, filling their heads with too much information. So that never happens, does it? Uh, every once in a while. Yeah. So let's talk about our sponsors. First off, the Anderson Bat Company. Everything Fast Pitch is very proud to have Anderson Bat Company as our presenting sponsor. Anderson Bat Company is using the latest and greatest bat technology to corner the market in the fast pitch world. They have the minus 9 rocket tech, the minus 10 carbon, and the minus 11 carbon light. Anderson Bat Company is using this technology to put a high-performing bat in the hands of hitters that really know the difference between a good bat and a great bat. We're also working with Anderson to provide a discount for all of our listeners. Go to the Anderson Bat Company website and order your bats. Use the EFP20 discount, which is for everything fast pitch, and you'll get a 20% discount. It's a great way for you to save a little bit of money on a great bat and also help support everything fast pitch at the same time. And let's talk about Patreon.com. All of you uh, have been uh, hearing us ask for and talk about patrons for a while. If you can go to patreon.com slash everythingfastpitch and you're in a position to help us, we would love for you to come on board as a patron. There's three different levels of support that you can offer, and certainly Coach Don and I appreciate any help we can get. Uh, we've been doing this now for a little bit more than three years, and the patrons are the people that are really keeping it rolling. We're fortunate enough to have some sponsorship and things like that, but the real nuts and bolts of uh, growing everything fast pitch and coach prep is being supported by our patrons. So if you're in a position where you can, it's either five, ten, or twenty dollars a month. You can go to Patreon.com/slash/EverythingFastPitch and please become a patron. So Don, in our warm-up segment, let's talk about the city of the week, Bremerton, Washington. Yeah, no, Bremerton, Washington. I know I used to live in Everett, Washington. Well, we get a lot, of, a lot of listeners in Washington. I think that the, that great Northwest is obviously a big softball area. You know, Washington, Oregon uh, are both really big states. We have big, big listenerships there. Uh, but we wanted to say thank you to the folks in, in Bremerton uh, who are helping to support everything Fast Pitch by getting people involved. Uh, we love to see the numbers go up. It's always exciting to see a spike in the numbers in a specific area because what that tells us is very clearly 
one of you listeners has gone gone above and beyond and told a whole bunch of your friends, people that you know, hey, give this thing a shot, give these guys a, a listen and uh, see what you think. And, and a lot of those people are sticking with us. And uh, certainly we love to see the numbers going up. It's great to know that we're reaching more people. And uh, we're always asking you as our listeners who are already on board to get somebody new to, uh, to listen and to support everything Fast Pitch. It's, it's great for us and, and exciting to see those numbers continue to grow. So our player of the week, Don, is Blakely Smith. Blakely plays for the 6U Buford All-Stars. They won a big tournament uh, to kick off the All-Star season. Watching the little kids play the 6U, 8U, 10U kids is always exciting and, and, uh, um, and fun because it's just, you know, everything's new to them. The skill level is surprising at times when you watch some of these really young kids play. Uh, but Blakely had a big uh, first tournament, had a, had a big grand slam, has helped her team. Uh, but I, I've gotten to know her very well here over those last couple of years, and she's just one of those you know, little spitfire kids that just loves playing softball. You know, she comes to practice, and she can't wait to, you know, to be on the side you know, working on her pitching, or you know, she'll sneak off and start hitting the ball off the tee or whatever. It's just really fun to see uh, a young player with that much passion and love for the game. That's awesome. I know a lot of times, Tori, with uh, younger players, you know, it just makes me smile. You know, they're uh, out there working hard and accomplishing things sometimes for the first time. Right. Like you say, whether it's a big grand slam or an amazing catch, and uh, it just makes me smile anytime yeah. they, they do a lot of these fun things. I know uh, somebody sent me a, a picture of uh, B at one of our tournaments, and uh, I was sitting at the uh, end of the dugout, and I was kind of sitting on the bucket and had, you know, you know, like one knee up, you know, my foot up on the fence. And she was right outside the fence, basically standing almost exactly as I was sitting there on the bucket. Uh, we, we always talk about what's going on in the game and, and things like that, but she's uh, you know dying to learn more and, and just is a really good example of what we're looking for when we talk about our Fast Pitch Prep Player of the Week. So congratulations, Blakely Smith. You're the Fast Pitch Prep Player of the Week. Our equipment tip of the week, Don, the Square Cuts training discs. Uh, we keep gaining momentum. More and more people are using them. More and more people like them. And uh, we're really excited to have our name associated with the Square Cuts training discs because I know it's a tool that is really making life better for a lot of hitters. No, we need variety in our training, Tori, and this is creating an opportunity for us to uh, branch out and try something a little bit different. And I would definitely encourage the listeners, no matter where you're at, you need to get a set, try them, see what you think, and then share them with others. Absolutely. You can find... The Square Cuts training discs on our fastpitchprep.com website. If you go to the website, there's a link. Just click on the link. You can order them. They are $49.95 a dozen. Uh, they are made out of an impact-resistant rubber material, so they will not harm your bats, but they have the same diameter and, uh, and weight as a real softball. So when you hit it, you know you're really hitting something. You know, one of the things about training tools, you know, when we look at sock balls and wiffle balls and foam balls and stuff like that, they all serve a purpose, too. But I like something that when the hitter hits it, they can feel the impact and know that they're actually hitting something that's got some substance to it. No, this is going to give you immediate feedback. And uh, Tori, I think you're giving everybody a discount that's listening. Correct? Right. If you yeah. if you are a listener, you go to the uh, website, go on the link uh, to order, and you can get a 10% discount. The discount code is ILISTEN21. So ILISTEN and then the numbers 21. And you pl plug that in, you're going to get a 10% discount. And we're still doing a 40% discount for our patrons. If you become a patron, decide you want to order some of the Square Cuts training discs, we'll send you a special code for that, uh, which will get you a 40% discount. So if you're interested in the Square Cuts training discs, please go to the website and go ahead and get them ordered up. I also want to talk really quickly about Anderson Bats. We had a great 
conversation, great visit with uh, yeah. Tristan Hildebrand yeah. from uh, Anderson. And he answered a lot of questions, shared a lot of information that I think is very important, very useful. Because one of the things that uh, you know, I think for both of us that we see all the time is that parents, players are always looking for an edge. They're always looking for something that's going to give them a leg up. And the conversations with, uh, with Tristan, I think, put some things into perspective for people so that they can be a little bit more informed, a little bit wiser as they're out there trying to decide what's the right bat for them. Uh, but we are completely supporting Anderson bats. The uh, fast pitch bats that we have used and tested are really outstanding. They also have slow pitch and baseball. If you want to uh, order through them, you can go to the andersonbat.com website. You put in the EFP20 uh, discount code that we talked about in the opening, and that's going to get you a discount. It's going to help support everything fast pitch at the same time, and Anderson bats just rock. So, Torio, I was really excited to hear uh, through that conversation that uh, through all their testing that they're getting um, the maximum allowed exit velocities from the bats that they're creating and uh, and also, too, creating a durable product that, you know, is going to spend more time in your hands and not in the mail, right? Right. I think sometimes gets lost on people is everybody's looking for the hottest bat. They want the hottest bat. There's even people trying to advertise and say that they have the hottest bat. Well, the standard is the standard and the rules are the rules. And the bat manufacturers are working to those tolerances. They want to get as close to the maximum exit speed as they possibly can consistently. But Nobody is going to run the risk. Nobody is putting a product out on the market that exceeds those standards. You're not going to get a bat that is miraculously going to be three or four or five miles an hour faster exit speed than anybody else because all those high-end bats are working at the maximum. They're all trying to get to that you know, sweet spot of the, the, the magic number, but none of them are run, willing to risk getting sued, getting put out of business because they cheat to give you something that's better. So when you know, you hear parents and, and coaches talking about, well, that's the hottest bat on the market. That bat's way hotter than everybody <laughs> else. It's just not true. Common sense should be telling people that, that if we all have a bat that's got the same stamp on it, if it says, you know, USSA or USA Softball or whatever the organization is that's certifying it, those people aren't certifying something that breaks the rules. Right. So and what do you think about this too, Tori? Another, another uh, misconception sometimes is that the most expensive bat is the best bat. Right. Well, that, I mean, in one way, create some logical thinking, but, you know, from listening to Tristan talk about the Anderson product, they're trying to put a bat out there that is as good as the most expensive bat, but maybe not, you know, hitting you in the pocketbook quite as bad, right? Right. Well, and I think what they've done is they've found that uh, balance that, that uh, would be great if everybody did. They're putting out a high-performance bat that that matches everything else on the market, but it's more durable and it's more affordable. And I think that the science behind it is impossible to argue with. And hearing that science and hearing those explanations is, is really you know, convinced me that they are, are trying to do something different that's better for the game. And obviously it's good for their business. Sure. Uh, you know, and, and especially now because there are other bats out there that have such a bad reputation for durability and everything else, you know, that when you find out that you can get a bat that's going to perform that's not going to be in the mail every two weeks because it's you know made out of champagne glass or whatever. You know, I think that's a, a big thing. So, But check out the AndersonBat.com website. If you order through them, put in the EFP20 discount, you're going to save some money on a great bat, and it's going to help us at the same time. So, Don, our Did You Know, another NCAA Division I record, and this one, I will say without a shadow of a doubt, is never going to get broken. Another? 
games played. Stephanie Christofferson at University of Illinois Chicago played in 304 games in her career from 1998 to 2001. As you say that, I'm starting to think about redshirt years and half seasons and right. all these things, but how many games? 304 games. So that means four years, she played games. 76 games each yeah. year. That's awesome. That's, that's, that's not old, going to ever happen again. That's old again. school, right? Yeah, and that's before yeah. we had the 56 rule for counting games and for scheduling. You know, back in the days when we talked about this uh, a couple other times, where you entered a tournament trying to figure out how you could get more games in in a day instead of you know, you know knowing you were going to go and play one or two games and that was going to be it. And her program uh, at Illinois Chicago was well known for traveling the world. They would go to California, Florida, Hawaii, wherever they had to go to get the games in because they knew early in the year they certainly weren't going to be playing a whole lot of them in Chicago. No, that's exciting. And that just creates an environment too for a lot of other records, I guess, with that many games played. But yeah. That's so, very cool. So that's one that I'm going to say is never going to be broken because I, now at 56 games in the regular season, figure 12, 15, maybe more in the postseason, if you make it all the way to the like championship the game, end. the College World Series, the chances of somebody even coming close to that record, I think, is, is impossible. 70 is a maybe. Yeah. Did, did you know Stephanie Christofferson, Illinois, Chicago, played 304 games in her career? Our listener question comes to us from Becky. And Becky is a mom of a pitcher, and this was her question. My daughter is 12 years old, and it seems like she has plateaued. Is this normal, and what can she do to keep improving? Tori, I think that's kind of a, an interesting thing where all the kids are different. And we've seen times when, uh, even at a little bit younger age than that, that they really gain a lot of speed, and then they kind of just flatten out for a little while. Right. You, you'd think that they should be throwing 80 miles an hour by the time they get to college because they're throwing you know, 60 at 12U. And uh, it just doesn't work that way. And fine-tuning the pitching and things like that is a needed part of that whole development. But again, I think there's going to be times when things flatten out a little bit and, and we have to wait for them to grow and get a little taller, longer. Yep. Right. When I think that uh, at that age, um, there's going to be peaks and valleys in any player's development, you know, certainly as a pitcher, but in any at any position, and honestly, probably at any sport, sure. where you're going to have growth spurts and puberty and, flat times and uh, of... training and you know different uh, interests you know start to to factor in and different things are all mixed into this pot of trying to figure out why is my daughter either improving or not improving the timeline and, yeah and plateaued i'm i'm assuming what becky's talking about is that she's you know kind of been stuck at a certain speed for a while and maybe it, as you were saying you know she might have had a a good stretch where she added a few miles an hour and seemed to be, you know, gaining more and more velocity and it has kind of hit a wall. And I think a lot of players, as you said, Don, if you can keep pushing, keep working, uh, maybe change up your training a little bit. Sometimes maybe, it, you know, you need a different instructor or a different training program. Sometimes kids just stop working for a little while. You know, they, they think, wow, I've, you, know, you see these you know pictures on uh, social media all the time Had with good the, success right, so yeah things the, are good with the, the little girl with the radar gun with the big smile on her face that she hit 50 or 55 or 60 or whatever the number is and you know it's just kind of human nature when you start to think you're pretty good you start to think you're about as good as you need to be right and you get a little complacent yeah maybe maybe, yeah. maybe a little complacency sets in you know sometimes for the coaches and the instructors when a kid makes a big jump and they started, well, we got this figured out. She's going to just keep right on going. And then it's on us to 
continue to push and to continue to come up with more challenge ideas. and see what's next right yeah so so becky i wouldn't panic but i also would be you know taking a good look at what's going on has she continued to work just as hard um is she stale in her training is she uh you know hearing what she wants to hear instead of working on the things that she needs to work on you know there's all kinds of different things that could be contributing to these uh, uh peaks and valleys my honest opinion is that if she keeps working she'll start to you know see you know, some more gains eventually. As Don said, let's make sure we keep it all in perspective. You know, let's say you have a 12-year-old who's, you know, pitching 60 miles an hour. Her maximum when she's 18 might be 62 or 63 sure. or 64. And, you know, yeah, otherwise, you know, when Monica Abbott was 12 years old and she was throwing 65 miles an hour, we would have expected by the time she was in college, she was throwing like 120. Right. And she got bigger and stronger and, and, and more experienced. But you know, I think that there's going to be a ceiling for most of these kids too. And the other thing, I'm just going to throw there out, throw this out there for all our pitching parents and and people that uh, have watched so much of the college softball on TV. The ESPN radar gun is not accurate. You think it's a little high? I think it's about five miles an hour high. Mm-hmm. And I've been saying this for years because I think that it's uh, one of those packaging things that we do to try to. You know, make the game seem more than it is. And... The reason I say that is I've been doing this for a really long time, and nobody can convince me that every single team that we've watched on TV in the conference tournaments, regional tournaments, super regionals, and college world series has a multitude of pitchers throwing 68, 69, and 70 miles an hour. Because I've been at the ballpark watching these same pitchers when they're not on TV throwing 61, 62, 63 miles an hour. I've had them on the pocket radar many, many times throwing 61, 62, 63 miles an hour. And nobody can tell me that just the adrenaline of knowing you're on TV pumps you up for five or six or seven or eight more miles an hour. Now, 63 is fast. It's hard to hit. But I think there's a maybe five female human beings on the planet that can actually pitch at 70 miles an hour plus consistently. And if you watch the game on TV, you would be led to believe that every single player is throwing 65 or higher. And that's just not realistic. Yeah, maybe it's the distance that the, you know, calibrating the distance. You always try to be so nice about it. (laughs) We're just going to cut through the slack. Becky... uh, these, w- these women are not all throwing 68 miles an hour. So if your daughter isn't throwing 68 miles an hour, we don't have to panic and think we, we got to you know, freak out because you know, if, she's, if she's plateaued at 12 at 60 and she's watching these girls on TV and everybody seems to be throwing 70 or more, it's just not it's always not, accurate. Not the same for everybody. But well, I'm going to throw one more piece in there too, Tori, is that I would suggest... Uh, to all the kids that, that really work hard to create a journal and to create a little bit of a, a timeline on all the different training things you talked, Tori, about um, changing things up and stuff like that. And it's hard for us to remember six weeks ago or six months ago what things we were doing that maybe helped us uh, make our, our last gain or what we were doing at that point. So if we make a journal that we can look back into it and, and try and figure out the things that did help us make a jump or a gain, then that might be insightful for us to figure out what we need to try again or to do more of, you know, to get back in that mode of of making strides and gains. Right, because it could be something completely um, off the radar that, you know, you were sleeping better, you started a workout program, you were... uh, One odd little exercise that we were doing. you, You switched your diet, you know, something that, you know, 
six months or a year later, you've kind of gotten used to it and you don't realize the impact that it might have had back then. So, we were but, throwing long, yeah. But, but Becky, hopefully that helps. Uh, and again, I, I would not panic, but I would you know, take a good look at what's going on and make sure that we're doing the things that we uh, can do to try to continue to improve. So that, Don, is going to lead us into this week's edition of Paige's Power Play. Hey there, it's Paige, and it's that time to get another mental training tip in to work on your mental game, and we're talking about how to avoid letting one mistake turn into a bad day. If you've probably felt like when you've made that one mistake and all of a sudden it feels like the world is ending or that one mistake led to five more mistakes or that you made that mistake and it's all you can think about for the rest of the day. I feel you, girl, and I've got you. I teach the girls in my program these four different steps to to confidence after a mistake. So after making a confidence, these are four things that you can do to start feeling confident again and feeling good and getting back in alignment with yourself. So number one is awareness. And this is just knowing that your thoughts are starting to spiral to a destruction and you're having uh, mindfulness to be like, okay, Paige, it's happening. Shift your thoughts. Change the way that you're thinking right now, which leads us to step two, which is reflect. Ask yourself these three questions. What did I do well? What did I not do so well? And how do I get better? Step three is to remodel your thoughts. See the lesson in your mistake, learn from it, use it as fuel, use it as a tool to get better and move forward. Tell yourself what you are actually capable. And this is where affirmations and positive self-talk, all that work and practice comes into place. For example, I would be telling myself, this was one mistake. I'm a powerhouse, I can hit anything. Focus on what's next. And number four, my favorite is just go. Hit the go button. Trust your preparation. Trust your words. Trust your intuition. Trust you. And just remember, you get to control your thoughts. You control your feelings. You control your actions. Let go of the results. You get to play for you. You just play hard and you play for fun. This is how you stop letting one little mistake turn into a bad day, a bad weekend, or a bad week by doing these four easy steps. So keep on keeping on, go do these four steps, try it out, and start putting a stop to letting that one mistake turn into a bad day. All right, Paige just kicks butt. She's awesome. I I love listening to the power play every week. I mean, I think she's always sharing information. I've said this last week, and I'm going to say it again. If you are listening to this podcast, you need to get your kids involved in the Pages programs. The Confident Athlete, uh, she just started doing something now with FCA, which is very faith-based. We shared on our Facebook page the other day. Uh, Paige is doing a lot of really good things for these kids. She's helping them become more confident, become more aware of what's going on. Uh, to be better players, better people, and just happier, I mean, in general. So go to pagetons.com, sign up for the Confident Athlete, check out what she's doing with FCA, get involved with her programs. You're going to really be glad that you did. You're going to end up with a much more successful and happier softball player because of it. So Don, that's going to take us into our leadoff topic. Leadoff topic is sponsored by Elite Sporting Goods, located at 905 Grayson Highway in Lawrenceville, Georgia. 
Phone number there is 678-377-0270. You can also contact them at Elite Sports Orders at yahoo.com. Anything you need, bats, balls, spirit wear, equipment, uniforms, uh, they've got it all and they can ship it to you anywhere in the country. So for our leadoff topic, Don, I wanted just to talk about a couple of things, kind of big thoughts from the NCAA tournament. You know, now that we've gotten into the College World Series, you know, this year we've had a couple of uh, unseeded teams have made it. Um, but I think that there's a story within every story and there's, there's things for us to think about. And one of the things that happened right after these selections were made was a lot of hand-wringing about uh, seeding and, and who got sent where and, and how things matched up. And one of the things that seems to happen every year is that when we get to the end of the season, the NCAA committee looks back at the results and says, see, we did know what we were talking about. Sure. You know, we, we did pick the right team. And this year, I think, might be the year that we have to really consider how accurate that assumption is at the end by looking at the outcome if we really did the best job we can. And now, the first thing that I wanted us to talk about is that I think that the seeding really does matter for the teams that make it to the College World Series. Matchups make a difference. Matchups yeah. make a big difference. Now, one of the things that ties to the hands of the NCAA committee, and this is something that I think needs to be addressed, it needs to be changed, because softball is no longer the cute little sport that, uh, that has to look to save money and cut corners and, and be budget conscious all the time. For the NCAA softball committee, there's a 400-mile rule that basically means as much as possible, they try to group teams together at the regional level that fit within a 400-mile radius. The 400-mile radius is important because that means a team can bus to a location at 401 miles allowed, allowed to allotted. fly. Flight gets paid for versus the bus gets paid for. Well, obviously, flying a team someplace costs the NCAA more money sure. than, than busing them did. And way back in the day when all these rules were made, softball was losing money like crazy. It wasn't on TV. It wasn't as popular as it is now. And it's time for that to change so that the NCAA committee can do a better job of really seeding the tournament and putting teams where they belong instead of trying to put teams kind of where they belong along with making sure that they can bust as many teams to as many places as possible. So I think that that's a big part of it. But when we look at the seeding, you know, perfect example, everybody freaked out about Washington being the 16 seed. Now, of course, now that we've played the first round of the uh, College World Series games and James Madison upset Oklahoma, you know, kind of gives some credibility to the people who say, well, you know, Washington shouldn't be mad. They should just beat Oklahoma. Right. Well, going to Norman, Oklahoma and beating Oklahoma on their home field in front of, you know, a couple of thousand crazy fans on their field is a different kind of challenge than beating them in Oklahoma City at the College World Series. The idea that uh, it doesn't make a difference or that you know they should just shut up and suck it up and go ahead and win those games anyhow, I think is a little bit loopy. No, I think you got a great point, Tori. And you know, with all of the advancement, ability for them to really see all these games, because they're all being recorded now, that we should have a really good look at uh, being able to compare the teams and see them really well. Right. And I mean they got 13 out of 16 I think. There was only maybe 3 upsets in the in the 16, but to your point the matchups were, you know, interesting. Right. Well, and and you know, perfect example, I've taken a team to Alabama to play in a regional. The year that we went there 2007, we were fortunate enough to pull off the upset of all upsets and we beat them in the Friday night game. 
came back and won the second game. So we were sitting there as the undefeated team waiting for Alabama, an angry, aggravated, frustrated, go out to prove to the world Alabama that they were going to still you know, win their regional in advance. Um, as a matter of fact, I think we're the only team that ever beat Alabama in a regional game at, at Tuscaloosa. Alabama, yeah. And I think what happens is for a school like ours, you know, as the team that I had at Tennessee Tech, the best team I've ever had, is sitting there on Sunday morning waking up thinking, okay, now we're going to play Alabama again on their home field with a couple of thousand crazy people screaming and cheering and making our 30 or 40 or 50 family members and parents pretty much disappear in the, in the madness. In the noise, yeah. They woke up that day thinking, Tennessee Tech, we're going to sweep them. And we woke up thinking, oh my gosh, we've got to be able to pull off the now the new biggest upset in the history of our ever program, ever in our lives. Well, who do you think has the advantage? They woke up that Sunday morning knowing they were going to sweep us just like they would have expected it uh, a thousand other times. And right. we woke up that morning going, well, we beat them on Friday. We can, but there's no way in the world that it's the same thing. And so to me, you know, how you get seated is important. So we sent Clemson this year to Alabama to face arguably one of the best pitchers in the game on her home field with a couple thousand crazy screaming fans. That was the reward that Clemson had for having an amazing, year. An amazing year. Now, how much of it was that's where they were seated and somebody really thought they were the... So if, if Alabama's the number three national team, if we were really seeding the top 32, that means that somebody thought Clemson was the 30th best team. And they were clearly or, probably a good bit better than yeah, that, right? Or were they the best combination of teams that we could send to fit within 400 miles? So instead of flying them to Arizona State or someplace else... Right. So, and, you know, you know, using the Arizona State Regional as an example, Virginia Tech got flown to Arizona State and won that regional because I believe Virginia Tech can't bus to Alabama. They, <laughs> right? So, you know, we start to tr add all that stuff up and there's a lot of, you know, different variables, but it's not just, you know, how do we match up the best teams? And what I would love to start to see is, like they do in other sports, that instead of just trying to pick the top 16 seeds and picking seeds based on what works geographically so that we can get as many teams on buses as possible, let's start seeding the top 32. Right. So that the 17th seed is matched up with the 16th seed, which would make sense, and the first seed is matched up with the 32nd seed, and you know, then we can fill in around that. I mean, maybe that's the, a, a good first step. Because this is definitely one of those chicken-egg arguments. What comes first? The seeded teams winning all the regionals or the fact that they win all the regionals because we seed them? No, I think you've got a great point there, Tori. And the funds should be there to make it a straight-up wherever it is, wherever we got to get them to play, right? Right. Well, and it has to be now. There's no way that, yeah. you know, with... As popular as softball is, the fact that all these regionals and super regional games are on TV, I mean, there was so much softball on TV for those couple of weekends. ESPN's paying something for that. Sure. And I think that they would be even paying more if they could look at every one of the regionals and say, wow, we've got a legitimate you know, couple of good teams in every region. This is going to be even better TV. This is even going to be more exciting. You know, And the you know, example of a region that was 
really wide open and 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 the host team kind of got I guess hosed or whatever it was Tennessee with the Knoxville Regional because they were in the wheelhouse of sending two quote unquote mid-major teams to one region that neither one of which are mid-major teams and both of which are have to be in the top 30 teams in the country. So James Madison, sweetheart team now that's, you know, that's pulled off the upset of all upsets at the College World Series was the number 3 seed in the Knoxville Regional <laughs> behind Liberty and Tennessee. Right. Do those teams deserve to be split up and sent to different places or do we just keep sending them all to Knoxville <laughs> because we know that that's convenient? Every year Louisiana and LSU are grouped together. And Taking it even further out on the West Coast, you know, Fresno and some of those schools know they're always going to get stuck playing UCLA. The regionalization of it to me, I think, is just really disappointing. And I think that's something that needs to be changed. It will change. And, and, yeah. I, and I think that now that it got so much mileage this year, there's so much uh, hand wringing and so much public angst about it, you know, so much talk on ESPN and every place else that the committee is going to get a kick in the butt and they're going to have to start to look at maybe changes in policies. They're in the spotlight, Tori, and I think you've got a great point. And it is time to maybe change or make it make it as good as possible, right? right? Yeah, and, and we're doing that with other sports already. I mean, can you imagine the NCAA men's basketball tournament saying, okay, now we're going to have to match up North Carolina, Duke, because they're closer. and Kentucky together because they can all bust to each other. We, we can make it happen easier. Yeah. But in the basketball tournament, and again, I know that you know basketball's the you know the you know, number two sport on the on the pecking order. But doesn't make sense to say that it's okay to send teams everywhere for basketball and then not send teams everywhere for softball because softball's number three on on the food chain right now for what's the most important sport. No, I think that's a great point. We gotta gotta make it happen though. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted us to talk about really quick is the mid-major programs that really made some noise. You know, obviously we have the Power Five conferences, and they dominated the regionals, they dominated the super regionals. But this year we had JMU make it all the way to Oklahoma City. You know, as we were recording here on a Friday morning, they won their first game yesterday against Oklahoma in what might be, you know, on paper at least, biggest upsets ever. Um, I think we can safely say that James Madison's not scared of anybody. <laughs> um, but is, is that, you know, using again the men's basketball analogy, you know, Gonzaga is the you know, little school that could that became the men's basketball powerhouse. Yep. Is JMU that? You know, for a while we thought that it was going to be Louisiana. There's been a few other teams along the way that have done it for you know bits and 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 pieces and a couple years at a time. Because there is so much talent in the game now that we're going to have chances to see schools like JMU have some success. Uh, now, of course, getting there and staying there are two different arguments. But once you get there, I think that's got to help you with recruiting. It's got to help you with a whole lot of things that could continue oh, that, sure. that that development. And with this portal stuff now, I mean, they could keep the shelves stocked nicely there. Yeah. The whole portal thing <laughs> is something that I think we're going to have to just do a special show and get a couple of a couple of guests in. Um, Much easier to keep the shelves stocked. Yeah, because the the reality of it is, you know, the the mid majors that we're talking about are the schools now that I'm fearful are going to get cherry picked of Be really losing. talented players. Now no, I know. Now when you look at the portal. There's a lot of kids leaving powerhouse schools too, not just you know the mid-major kids trying to you know move up to bigger, greener pastures. You have a lot of kids on some of those big-time programs looking for different opportunities too. But I think that uh, it's just one more wild card in in the whole landscape of how how to anticipate from year to year who's going to be good 
And I think if we, if we do a, a transfer portal show and, and spend some time really talking about it, I just want us to talk about the impact that I think it's having on the high school kids that have been dreaming about playing college softball for a long time and what's happening. Changing the landscape. Right. Yeah. And, and again, chicken or egg, you know, a, a kid thinks they're going to their dream school, but then what uh, was part of that decision was, you know, I think I'm going to have a chance to play when I'm a junior. I'm going to have a chance to play when I'm a sophomore. I'm going to have a chance to play when I'm a freshman. And then all of a sudden, three new kids transfer in. Just like that? Yeah. And so, you know, and this year we've had, you know, ironic showdowns. You know, yesterday in the, in the College World Series, we had Oklahoma State, you know, barely beating Georgia. And Oklahoma State has a couple of kids on their roster that transferred from Georgia from because Georgia? they didn't, yeah. you know, they wanted to go someplace that had a chance to get to the College World Series. And there they both are. And there they're playing each other in the College <laughs> World Series. The, the idea that a program like Georgia for a couple of years now has lost players to some of these other schools, you know, schools like, you know, South Carolina with Jana Johns leaving there to go to Oklahoma. You know, these are kids that, you know, are at big time programs and big time conferences with big time budgets and they're still bouncing from school to school. It's something else. It's, it's a it's a whole different world. So um so we'll just leave the the transfer portal there for right now. But I think there's a lot of cool stuff going on, but I think we want to get the idea of changing the selection process to gain some momentum. You know, it's okay for us to have that conversation. It's okay for us to be talking about it and it's okay for the administrators and coaches to be pushing this agenda forward. Because I think the, the coaches know now, the college coaches for sure know, that their sport's important enough that it shouldn't be getting treated like the poor little program that, that can't do anything for itself that needs to be supported all the time. We're, we've carved out a niche where softball is very important and it needs to be treated like it, like it is. Absolutely. Hopefully next year too, Tori, with less of the COVID scenario, maybe it will be a little bit easier for them to do it properly. Yeah. So down our cleanup topic. I want us to start rethinking some of the stuff we're doing on defense as coaches in the way we're training our players and the decisions that we're making. Quick little story. Our little 12 and under team came back and uh, won a tournament, came from behind in uh, three of the bracket games. So that was exciting. But one of the things that happened in two of those bracket games that helped us win, and to me, it's just not logical to see some of the decisions that coaches are making and some of the strategies that they're employing. So the bottom of the last inning, we're up to bat. Okay, home team. We're the home team. We are down by two runs. We have bases loaded with one out. So how important is it for the runner at third not to score? We're down by two. So if that runner from third scores, all that happens is we're still down one. Correct. Two teams in a row that we played brought their infield in with less than two outs to try to cut down the runner at the plate when the runner scoring was not the tying run, was just a run. And in both cases, balls that I think if they play a normal depth, normal defense, at least they get one out, maybe, you know, keep us from scoring anyhow, get turned into one's a bloop hit, that drops in where the shortstop would have been standing if she was playing normal depth, or she would have you know, maybe had to move you know, three or four feet to catch, that all of a sudden now was a drop, step, turn, and run, and have to run 25 or 30 feet to catch. So we're both thinking the important run is on second. Right. And if that shortstop is back where she belongs, and, and honestly, because it was a blooper, she catches it and we don't score anyhow. Sure. So we're choosing the wrong things. And I think we're prioritizing the wrong things for a lot of us as coaches. Second one, shortstops in way inside the baseline to cut down that runner at home. We hit a high hopper 
you know, kind of turns it into a, a really play. difficult play for her yep. because she's so shallow. You know, it handcuffs her a little bit and, and uh, gets by her in two-run score. If she plays back at her normal depth, it's a nice big hop. She can toss it to the third baseman. She can toss it to the second baseman. We get one run. They're still ahead, and now there's two outs. And I just think we have to start to talk about it as coaches. To me, there are always going to be certain times when we know that we have to keep that run from scoring. But there's too many times in too many different situations that we're choosing the, we can't let them get one more run, and it's costing us a lot more than one run. No, I think that's exciting that it played out that way with you guys, Tori. And yeah. again, that's a good, well, but, good but, topic for discussion. Yeah, but, yeah. but here's the thing that, I mean, I like winning as much as anybody, don't yeah. get me wrong. But I'd like for us to know we won, not they lost. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And when I see a coach make a decision that I know is faulty, it's not logical, it does not make sense, and it certainly is not something I would ever advocate doing, and that leads to them making a mistake or turning something you know that we did that's kind of positive but kind of not into a game-winning play or a game-changing play, it's 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 hard for me to enjoy that quite as much. You know, if we hit a screamer in the gap and we get a walk-off double, I'm excited as could be. But when I'm thinking, man, they screwed that up. You know, it worked out for us. Well, but I wonder if they're listeners, Tori. Well, they might be. If they are, they'll hopefully <laughs> do it different they'll, next they'll, time. They'll do better. Yeah. Um, because to me, the, you know, the one thing that happens, and I see it happening often is we get so wrapped up in thinking that we have to make that play on the lead runner that we turn one run into two, we turn one run into three or four, we turn one run into a rally, and instead of still being in the game and having a chance to still win it, we've we've just messed it up. At that point, you're in the outs business. Right. I mean, you, you get an out at first base, and you get two ground balls and two outs at first, and the game's over. Right. That's and, it. And, and even it, to, to my way of thinking, because you know, I'll, I'll even see it like in, fly ball. Yeah, I'll even see it in the first inning. You know, we haven't even hit yet, and we bring infielders all the way in to try to keep them from getting a run, and all of a sudden they've got three because that blooper that the shortstop would have caught just we're dropped in, in for a hit instead in of being an out. situation. Yeah. yeah, and so I want us to start thinking about the risk versus the reward. I want our coaches to start to really analyze is the benefit of and the risk of playing to keep them from getting a run worth the risk of what could happen if that blooper doesn't get caught. That three hopper up the middle that might have been a double play ball now gets you know gets to be a base hit up the middle. Ball that would have been a kind of a lazy little line drive to the shortstop where she's supposed to be standing ends up being a humpback looking base hit because you know she's you know twenty five feet closer to home plate than she needs to be. No, we got to manage those uh, scenarios, right? Yeah, and thinking about ways to get outs down. I think that you know being in the outs business is a great way to think about it. But I think the other thing, coaches, is we have to you know, really start to think about what we're used to and if that's the best way to approach it. Because a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing is just like old school, you know, back in the day, you know, that's how we did it when we were kids kind of thinking. And the game has changed so much. You know, there's so much more offense. There's so many more kids that can hit. Yeah, if you're down one to nothing to Montana Fouts, you feel pretty challenged. Like, sure. I don't know if we can get one. But even in the game last night with Arizona, you know, they still ended up getting one. You know, we have to try to think of ways to make sure that we're getting outs, to make sure that we're cutting down on the chances of big innings, that we're not turning, you know, bloopers and, you know, humpback liners and, and routine ground balls into 
hits and big innings because we're so dead set on keeping them from getting one run. No, I think that's a, that's a great point to make. And again, it's kind of an experiment. You've done the experiment right. well, <laughs> over and, and over. Yeah, and I mean, and yeah. I wish I would have kept score over the years because I'm willing to bet that the times that the bringing everybody in versus actually, actually, actually works, works yeah. versus the it blows up in our face it, and it, we turn it into a big train wreck of an inning. It looks like a thing, right? right? I'd be willing to bet that it's probably 25% of the time it works. You cut 75%, off a run or, Yeah, 25% yeah. they don't get any. Yeah. But the thing that always gets lost in that, and that's the point that I wanted to make, is the perfect example. That chopper that's a routine three hopper to the shortstop instead of this high, hop air, high hopping only chance I can make the play is to charge it and field it on a short hop. Right. A coin toss. I'm right. flipping a coin right now. Right. There's too many times where what ends up happening, we talk ourselves into thinking it would have happened anyhow. You know, that, that little blooper that drops it. in. Yeah. Well, like, well, that's a blooper. I can't believe they got that blooper to drop in. Well, yeah, but if the shortstop's playing where she's really supposed to, she takes two steps and she catches it. Sure. It goes in the book as a hit, but it really isn't. Might shouldn't have been. Right. Right, yeah. Um, so, coaches, just start to rethink it. Start to, to experiment with this in your practices and what you're doing in the games. Next time you're really thinking about, oh, my God, we have to cut that runoff at the plate, think about how many times you really cut the runoff and it makes a difference versus how many times it turns into a big inning. And now I get it. The winning runs at third, and no matter what, we have to keep her from scoring. That's a whole different thing. We cut off that run. Right. That's yeah. a whole different thing than we're ahead by two and they get one run. Or we're ahead by five, which I see all the time. We're ahead by five runs and the infield comes in. Tighten it up. It's like, yeah. can we please just be happy with winning by four and win instead of trying to <laughs> win by five and lose? No doubt. So anyhow. And so, Don, that's going to take us to our coaching tip of the week. Here's another one I want to rant and rant, rave and, oh. and be mad about. People. Stop overcoaching these hitters on game day. I am about ready to punch somebody in the nose. I get so frustrated when I see this stuff. And some of it's kids that I work with. You know, I've been you know, lucky enough to see some of the kids that I work with and to have them come back and you know, have struggled for a weekend and really had a tough time for a weekend and you know, be really you know, sad and upset because they didn't hit well this last weekend. And trying to think about, well, what's happening that these kids that leave and look like rock stars come back the next week looking like defeated little puppies that have never gotten a hit in their entire lives? No, I know. That's, that's a phenomenon, right? Yeah. And so whether it's coaches, whether it's parents, whether it's teammates, whether it's some combination of all of you. We can make sure we know what it's not. Right. What has to happen is we have to come to grips with a very simple thing. That last-minute tip, that last-minute bit of information, that last little reminder is not useful when a kid's walking up to the plate. It could be derailing. It's more often than not going to lead to that you know, paralysis from analysis, paralysis from over-analysis, locking up, freezing up, not being able to perform at all, than it's ever going to lead to them being successful. If you have a hitter in the box thinking about what she's doing with her hands, what she's doing with her hips, what she's doing with her head, what she's doing with her feet, what she's doing with anything other than just see the ball, hit the ball, we've made this really, really difficult and really, really complicated. One of the kids that I work with 
had the chance to watch her play in a game, uh, not a game that we played against them, but in an adjacent game during the tournament. I got a feeling I know where this is and, going. And I can tell you exactly why she can't hit in games. Between the first base coach, third base coach, and parents, it's like a race to see who can give her more pointers. She's getting, yeah, no, she's yeah, getting her, whiplash. Yeah, I, I think I think she's you know she needs to do <laughs> neck exercises because she's got to spin her head around like three sixty to listen to everybody give her all these pointers. A kid who you know steps into the box in a lesson looking like you know the greatest hitter ever, confident and powerful and loose and ready to swing, looks like this timid, scared little you know like. I don't even know what the right word to describe what she looks like is, but this terrified little kid that's you know like so busy thinking about all these things that she's supposed to do that she's forgotten how to hit. No, I know it. And hitting Tori's like routine, and we want a consistent environment, and to have a routine when they go up to bat, you know, whether it's a sequence of uh, you know preparation, shoulder rolls, breathing, visualizing, all those things are just a little bit disrupted maybe right when we're getting broad bombarded with all these different uh ideas which are probably all great things but that's you know not the time to, right they're, they're, they're things that should be, yeah. be worked on in, in practice. practice they should be yeah. drilled at home in the driveway with the bonnet it shouldn't be while you're walking up to the plate in the games <laughs> and i understand where this comes from because as coaches we think if i give that one last pointer if i give that one last tidbit that's, that's that thing, one last reminder that that's going to be the difference why she gets a hit or not yep. and for all of you that are sitting there thinking well yeah but i i reminded sally to keep her hands high last week and she went three for three right okay and so i reminded her every time to you know, to keep her hands high well Go back and look at how many other times you've told her to keep her hands high or whatever it was that you told her that it didn't work at all. Like and, and did you remember the three times that you told her last weekend to keep her hands high and she got hit? But you forgot the 23 other times that you told her to keep her hands high and she didn't? It's really only hitting 200. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, to, to me, it's, it's, it's just such a selective way of thinking about what we're doing as coaches. It's just human nature. We want to think that we're making a big difference, but we are making a big difference, but it's not a good one. Not the right one? Yeah, we're making a big difference. We're making it impossible for some of these kids to have success. Especially when we're younger, right? Yeah, but even next time you go to a, a Major League Baseball game and you see somebody t talking to a hitter on their way up to the plate, reminding <laughs> them what they're supposed to do, call me. Next time you watch, you know, uh, record it and yeah, call me, yeah. right? Ne ne next, you know, when we're all watching these, you know, college World Series games on TV, next time you see, you know, Kirk Walker or Mike Candrea or whoever the coaches are, um, Kenny Gajewski or, or Lou Harris or whoever it is, Sarah, keep your hands up. Sarah, keep your, you know, keep, your, you know, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. It just doesn't happen. And don't give me the, well, these are really great players. They don't need help thing. It's all relative. If you think your 10-year-old needs help against 10-year-old pitching, then you also would think that your 22-year-old senior in college needs help against 22-year-old pitchers. <laughs> it's time to go play. And, and to me, that's what gets lost in this whole thing. We have got to just let them take what they've worked on, take what they've learned, be able to use those skills and that confidence and that, that knowledge and just let them rip. And let let the, it go and see what happens. And then at the end of the day, evaluate, see what we need to work right. on, and get ready for the next day. Yeah, and yeah. if at the end of the tournament you see have seen something consistently that needs to be worked on, then we work on that at home in the driveway. We work on that in our lessons. We work on that in practice. 
And so we can teach them in a low-pressure, low-impact environment to change those skills, change those habits, and then they can take it and put it to work in the next game, in the next tournament. But please, for the love of God, (laughs) please stop giving these kids pointers when they're standing in the batter's box, when they're walking up to the plate, when they're in the on-deck circle. The things that you should be saying are like, you know, be confident, Don. Let it rip. You know, take your hacks, Don. You know, yeah. you know, go, go get it. You can hit it. You're you're a great a, hitter. A good positive statement. Yeah. I agree. Something I'm, something like that is awesome. As you're saying this, I'm seeing us tying their shoelaces together before <laughs> they go up to bat. Right? Yeah, the, putting the bat in their hands upside down. <laughs> right. You know, or or honestly, for some kids, you know, we've got them so paralyzed, we might as well send them up there with no bat. Putting a blindfold on them. Yeah, because they they have no yeah. chance at all. And so we've got to stop doing it. It doesn't work. I promise you, it doesn't work. The one time you're thinking about, well, yeah, we won that tournament because I reminded Sally to keep her hands up. You are so misremembering what really happened and how it really plays in the grand scheme of things. The thousand swings leading up to that, maybe. Right. Right. And so we we need to stop doing it because it's not helping these kids. Honestly, I think it's one more thing that's making this game really hard to play and stealing the fun from the kids that we should be allowing them to have. So that's my coaching tip of the week. That's one of my rants that just got driven home, um, my, my pet peeves that really got driven home this uh, last weekend, and uh, hopefully we can uh, start to impact more coaches. And the thing that I've, I've started to work with players on, I think you should listen to your coaches, but I think that you need to learn how to listen to them. Yeah. When, when, when they're selective, when, yeah, yeah. When, they're, when they're giving you pointers, turn that into just general encouragement. Yeah. So when they're when, excited when, for me. Yeah. When when your coach is, is cheering and reminding you to, you know, keep your hands high in your head, turn that into, you know, oh my coach really believes in me. Yep. He's excited. I yeah, am yeah. too. They're, they're, I'm I'm excited to hit because my coach is excited for me. Yep. And hopefully we can cross this bridge because otherwise I'm gonna start telling kids just don't listen to your coaches because they're <laughs> they, they don't know what they're doing on game day. And that's no fun. And and and, and, and that's yeah. not the message I want to deliver because yeah. I think that they mean well. They're trying really hard. They think what they're doing is helpful, but what you don't know, you don't know, and they don't know that it's not helpful. Oh, and again, too, I'm, I'm going to uh, throw it out there, Tori. That's how we were all coached, right, and taught. So yeah, we, and, we turn around and do the same thing, even though it might not be the best thing. Yeah, and, and it didn't work then, and it doesn't, doesn't work, work now. now. Yeah. So, and, and that's part of why everybody thinks hitting 300 is so great. Oh my gosh, she's a 300 hitter. She's a 400 hitter. Well, the reason we think that's good enough is because we've got these kids so screwed up they were willing to accept the fact that they fail so much. Right. If we didn't screw them up so much, I think kids would be hitting we, 500, 600, 700. We could at least add 50 points. No, I think a lot more than 50. Because if they were up there just hitting in games the way they just hit when there's no pressure on them, we'd all have a lot more fun. I think we maybe we could put up uh, some type of shield in between... The between field and well, the yeah, like, spectators, like, like right? that old uh, John Travolta movie like, about the boy in the bubble, more like hockey. Yeah, or, we yeah. we we need our hitters to be able to be in a bubble that nothing can get in until they get done hitting, and then they can like the bubble can disappear and they can run to first base. I talked to our kids about being inside a wobble bubble. You know what a wobble bubble is? Is that a Canada thing? No, uh, <laughs> it's a great big bouncy bubble. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the boy in the bubble idea. I don't know what you mean. So, yeah. But anyhow, coaches, stop doing it. It doesn't work. Got to change the way we're thinking about it. So, Don, that's going to wrap up 167. Before we do that, please make sure you reach out to us with questions, comments, ideas, suggestions. Um, you can contact us at everythingfastpitch at gmail.com 
or fastpitchprep at gmail.com. We definitely need player of the week nominations. Yeah, we've been fortunate. We've had several people have reached out to us. We want to recognize players from all over the country. I really enjoy recognizing a kid I know and somebody that I have the pleasure of working with or you know cheering for or whatever. That's great. But there's thousands and thousands of kids out there that deserve to be recognized. We want them to be wearing our Fast Pitch Prep Player of the Week t-shirts in California and Florida and, and Michigan and Washington and every place. And there's yep. players out there that deserve it. So please make sure you recommend them. Uh, send us that email with just a couple of particulars, a little bit of the information about why you want to nominate them, and we're going to consider them. Don't hold back, right? Don't be, uh, you know, don't be hesitant. Just shoot it out there, and we'll make sure we can recognize many of them. Right, and, and we enjoy doing it. So um, we want to have those T-shirts all over the place. So please, if, uh, if you have a player to nominate, reach out to us at fastpitchprep at gmail.com or everythingfastpitch at gmail.com. Check out our sponsors. Elite Sporting Goods and the Anderson Bat Company, and please check out patreon.com slash everythingfastpitch if you would like to become a patron. So for Coach Don McKinley and our producer Stan Lewis, this is Coach Tory saying thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.